We're in this series, of course, on contemplating from Scripture what it means to be the church. And we very cleverly co-opted a couple lines from Shakespeare, to be or not to be. And we're seeking the Holy Spirit to help us engage with the question, what does it mean to be Christ's church? And in a hundred ways, as we work our way through this, we find we face choices. It's like in Shakespeare, are you going to be or are you not going to be? I think that's in Macbeth, isn't it? Um, and he's facing, am I even, is it Hamlet? Sorry, I got it wrong. It's been such a long time since I studied that. Am I going to continue with my life or not? To, to be or not to be, I can't make up my mind. And for many in the church in our day, people get discouraged with church, loss of vision, and we find ourselves facing this question, to be or not to be. So this morning, we hope that this will be a part of encouraging myself and all the rest of us to do what's in us by the power of the Spirit, by the to be the church. Now, being the church, according to Scripture, is a very multifaceted and deep affair. We want to look this morning at one precise single issue, and that's this, being connected. We have a text from Ephesians 4, a very, very rich one, 4 verse 15 and 16, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. That's a profound thought just there, speaking the truth in love, what will happen? We'll grow will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together. I love the sound of those words, joined, held together. The devil loves to pull the body apart. But Paul's talking about something very different, a body that's joined and held together by every supporting ligament. In a few minutes, we're going to do a very, very brief biology lesson. My wife used to be a registered nurse, and she had to show me several times, this is the femur, this is the fibula, and then I get them all mixed up, and we're going to come back to that, because they're all connected by what Paul calls, and medical books call, ligaments. It's held together by every supporting ligament, and it grows, and it builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We want to lead up to that pivotal text in Ephesians by showing how, for Paul, what was behind him saying what we just read? There is centuries, there are centuries of history of God positioning his people to that point. Because for Paul, and for the whole Bible, God's plan is his people. Do we have that next slide there? God's plan is his people. He always works through people. The people in the very beginning of the story are, of course, Adam and Eve. And then, if the story had progressed as it was meant to, all of their descendants they are commissioned by God in Genesis 1.26 to reflect God. The way it's worded there is, I will make them to be my image. It meant that their ministry, their role, their calling, their vocation is to reflect God. They do this by 
ruling the world. Let them rule, it says in 128. Let them have dominion. Involved in that is being fruitful. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. How is God going to achieve all those goals? It's through a people. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Cultivate the garden and care for it. They were his people in that chapter in the great biblical story. Now we know that things didn't go according to plan A. Adam and Eve broke covenant with God. They went off the rails and took the human race with them. But praise the Lord, he didn't give up on his world. Many of you like I personally, many of you have attended Providence Seminary. And when I was there, the star teacher, in my view, was Gus Conkle. Some of you may know him or have sat under his ministry. And his, his passionate tagline that came up probably two or th- three or four times in every uh, unit was, God refuses to give up on his world. He was professor, professor of Old Testament there. God refuses to give up on his world. He, he taught Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. God refuses to give up on his world. And here's one of the classic proofs of that. When Adam and Eve went off the rails, God set up someone to step in and replace them. They're called Abraham and Sarah. As it were, a new Adam and Eve. God says, to, he says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. But notice what he says to Abraham and Sarah. I will make of you a great nation. Do you see the parallel? Something that starts small, like a little teeny church in Jerusalem, and then spreads all over the earth. This is the way God does it. Start small, go big, go gloriously big. I will make of you a great nation. The people who would come forth from Abraham and Sarah would be a people under the blessing of God, and, and they would, because of God's ability, his, his enabling with them, they would become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. God's plan is a people. God's plan is his people. Adam and Eve to begin with, now Abraham and Sarah. God's plan is his people. Where do we go next? Well, I'm skipping over a goodly number of centuries up to the inauguration of the new covenant. And interestingly, once again, if we look at it through the right spectacles, once again, it's a bride and a bridegroom. Adam, Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Christ, and church. Do you see the parallel? Because it's very consistent through the entire Bible. Now, like the promises to Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah, Adam and Eve were supposed to fill the earth and subdue it. Abraham and Sarah were meant, they were commissioned to become the nation that would bless all the nations of the earth. Well, that carries over right into what the church is all about because the people that Jesus calls to follow him, this is a a photo representing the Sermon on the Mount. That's the early in Jesus' ministry. At the end of his earthly ministry, what does he do? He takes the, the apostles up with him to the top of a mountain in Galilee and he sends them to all the nations of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. So in all three stages of this plan, God's plan for his people, all three go global. 
Adam and Eve, fill the earth, subdue it. Abraham and Sarah, bless all the nations of the earth. And Christ and his church, you go to all the nations and make disciples of them. God is into something very, very big. Okay, the point we've aimed to establish so far, God's plan is his people. But the Bible doesn't stop there. We also find that God's place is his people. Exodus 25, verse 8. Moses is up on the top of Sinai, Exodus 25, 8. God's speaking to him, and God says these words, Make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. Now, of course, that's referring to this splendid, symbolic, very elaborate worship tent that Moses and the craftsmen and artists in Israel made. But notice the purpose of it. I'll read it again. Exodus 25, 8. Make me a sanctuary so that... Here's a little Bible teacher's hint. Prick up your antenna when you see a so that. Because God will often do something. He'll do A so that B might happen. And the B is really the point of the whole deal. Okay? So come back to Exodus 25, 8. Make me a sanctuary so that... Well, so that what? That I might dwell among them. And here, the artist's impression in the image, that's from the closing verses of the book of Exodus where they have at long last completed the construction of the tabernacle. And what happens? Sure, faithful to his promises, God brings his presence down out of heaven and the fire fills the tabernacle. The fire is the manifest presence of God. Where is God? He's in the midst of his people. That's why they built it. He says, I don't want to be just God up in heaven. I don't want to be God on the top of the mountain. I want to be God in the midst of my people. Later in, in Exodus, Exodus 29.45, 29.45, this same promise rings out again. I will dwell among the people of Israel. I will dwell. Where does God dwell? In his dwelling place. Okay. Where's the dwelling place? It's in the middle of the camp of the people of Israel. God's place is his people. The next image shows us a picture. If you've studied the book of Numbers ever, it's a little bit of a a difficult book. It's very, very detailed, and you sometimes get lost in the detail. It's about Israel's 40-year journey across the desert. And one of the interesting features there, if you go to chapter 2, there's a, uh, it gives us the layout of the encampment of how the different tribes would pitch their tents relative to one another and relative to the God's tent, which is, which is in the middle. If you have a, a study Bible, it may have a, a, a diagram just like this one. The point to notice here is that God's tent is in the center. That's the long vertical rectangle and within which there's another smaller rectangle. That's where God lives. And all the 12 tribes are positioned around God's house. Their houses are around God's house. And they're also organized relative to one another because um, I think you can probably see it, the the, the names of the tribal groups uh, were... That's where each tribe dwelt. And over that little area where uh, 
um, you know, you'd have Reuben or Simeon or Gad, whoever it was, they had flags or banners up. And it said, it seems that from the text, this is what is going on, a, a banner or a flag within the Hebrew letters, the name of that tribe fluttering in the breeze on a great pole, a great, a great banner. And that's where they belonged. The, each, the people of each tribe knew where they fit. They knew where they fit in. It, it was part, in that time in the, in the Bible story, that was what it looked like to be connected. You found your place in the layout. Now there's a fascinating detail about the way, the way this influenced the way they lived. Some while after the desert journeys, people started writing psalms. One of them, Psalm 106, Psalm 106, in verse 4, listen to what it said, because the part of the message of this way of being God's people, it said to them, you are part of something bigger than yourself. Let me say those words again, because those words do not fit in our culture, in our society. We have to challenge them. We live in a terribly individualistic, it's all about me. But the point of this, to every single family or tribe or whatever, or individual, individual was, you are part of something bigger than yourself. Now listen to Psalm 106, verse 4. I just love this, and this challenges the way we are taught to think in our society. It says this, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. I'm going to read that again because it's, it's just a totally different way of thinking. He knows he needs individual rescue from something going on in his life. But he sees himself as something bigger than himself. Here it is again. Remember me, O Lord. This is Psalm 106, verse 4. When you show fa- Remember me when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them. Do we see what a radical shift that is from the way our culture teaches us to think? You find me a television ad that talk, thinks that way, I'll pay you a million dollars. And I'm not worried about paying out because I know it ain't going to happen. It, that challenges our modern culture. When you look at the way God made the world, I mean, physical creation. We live on a planet. Our planet is part of a solar system. You see, everything that God does is always part of something bigger than itself. Earth is part of the solar system. But the solar system is part of the galaxy that we call the Milky Way. The Milky Way galaxy, I'm told in astronomy books, which I like to read, is part of a cluster of galaxies. If you go step back far enough, like gazillions of light years, you can see there's galaxies clustered together. Now, it doesn't end there. I used to have a map on my wall in my office. I don't know what became of it. Got lost in one of our moves. Not only are there clusters of galaxies, there are clusters of clusters. And then they're called superclusters. And then there are clusters of superclusters. 
You see, it keeps happening. It's, it's like part of the fingerprints of God. With God, everything's always part of something bigger than itself. Your family, if you're committed to this church, your family is part of a local church. This church is connected to another gateway church. I'm an EK. But gateway church in both congregations is simply part of the city church, the church in the city of Winnipeg. And that terminology, the church in that city, is very biblical. Many of the New Testament epistles begin from Paul to the church which is at Corinth, the church in the city. Then there's the church in the nation. Then there's the church globally. And then even that church is something part of something bigger than itself because it's part, if you read Hebrews, it's part of the church in heaven, the, the, everyone who is enrolled in, in God's book of life. We're always part of something bigger. Now this dwelling place, we can move on now from the map. The dwelling place that was the temple, part, or initially, actually the tabernacle, it is fulfilled in a different way when the New Testament, when the New Covenant gets inaugurated. God sends Christ. Christ accomplishes his earthly public mission. He goes to the cross to take away our sins. He rises again on the third day. He ascends into heaven at 40 days after that. He sends his Holy Spirit onto the church. Now, God has a different dwelling place. It's no longer a tabernacle in the wilderness. Chris, if we can go to the next one. Here, perfect. Look at the two images. One is a tent made of fabric, and there was lots of gold in that thing. It must have been an amazing thing to see. That's his dwelling place then. The dwelling place that Christ establishes after he ascends into heaven and he sends his spirit down, the new dwelling place is people. You know where God's tabernacle is right now? Look around the room. That's the tabernacle. That's his dwelling place. Ephesians 2, verse 22, calls the church. This is Ephesians 2, 22, the dwelling place of God by his spirit. It's the fact of the flames around us and within us. That makes us his dwelling place. Different dwelling places, but the same fire. God's plan is a people, and God's place is his people. Now, all of that was the introduction <laughs> to what we're going to say now. Don't get scared, because whenever I say that, people freak out. They think it's going to be a four-hour sermon. So just, just three and a half. That's right. <laughs> God's plan is a people, God's place is his people, and God's life flows in our connection with his people. God's life flows in our connection to his people. You'll all recognize, I suspect, that painting is one of my favorite scenes in Scripture from, the, of course, the, the beautiful little book of Ruth. Life flowed to Ruth through her connection with one person. Initially, at least, through her connection with one person. Ruth was a Moabite. She was married to uh, an Israelite man, 
and or no, is that right? Did I get those? Were the sons, they, they were the Israelites. Yeah, that's correct. thank you. Yeah, I'm the Bible teacher. I ought to know this. <laughs> Naomi moved to Moab with her husband and their two sons. Tragically, the husband, Elimelech, and the two sons all became ill and all three died. So you're left with three des- destitute widows. One's an Israelite, the other two are Moabites, all living in Moab. Ruth, on her knees here, is one of the Moabites. And Naomi, the one standing up, she's the Israelite. She wants to go back to Bethlehem, where she came from in the beginning. And as she's going, the two daughters-in-law say, we want to come with you. It's a very poignant moment. It's in the first 10 or 12 verses of, uh, of the book of Ruth. She says, you know, daughters, there's no point in you following me. I co- I'm too old to have any more children to give you new husbands. Those days are over for me. Just go back to your people. Now, Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, you can see her in the background. They're walking away. She says, oh, okay. And she goes toddling off back to Moab. But Ruth has found something she wants and something she doesn't want to let go of. Part of it is Naomi. She just loves her as a person. But she also knows that if I hold on to Naomi, if I cling to Naomi, I'll learn to know her God. I want her God. So how did the life of Israel's God flow into Ruth? Ruth had no doubt been raised as a little Moabite girl to worship the Moabite gods. Now she's getting a taste of a different God. How's she going to connect with that God? Well, this scene is the answer. She's clinging to Ruth. Ruth says, oh, let go, let go. Just go back to your people. She says, no, I will not let you go. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And she clung to her. And then Naomi relented and said, okay, you come. Life flows into us. God's life flows into us. How? Through our connection with his people. Now, next slide is a bit grim. Bear with me. It's, of course, that sort of strange vision. This is many, many centuries after the Ruth story. Israel has had its, its rise and fall. It rises under King David, who is actually Ruth's great-grandson. And then centuries after David, it gradually goes off the rails, and the people of Israel end up in exile in Babylon. When they're in Babylon, God gives the prophet Ezekiel a vision of what he, God, is going to do. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry, dead, disconnected, and that's the point, disconnected bones. What are we talking about this morning? Connection. Be connected. The vision God gives Ezekiel is of people who are completely and totally unconnected, and there's no life in them. Maybe there's a connection between the no life and the unconnectedness. So God tells Ezekiel, speak breath. Speak life over this valley of dry bones. It was all in a vision. And Ezekiel does as he's told by the Lord. He speaks breath, breath, come into these bones. And he sees this wind, which is actually the breath of God, which is actually the Holy Spirit, coming onto these bones. And they start coming together. It's in Ezekiel 37. And if you look at verses 6, and again I think in verse 9, there's a detail. It comes in not once, but twice. As the bones come together and you see skin coming onto them and they're all connecting back together, twice it mentions something called 
sinews. I saw sinews on the bones. Sinews are what connect bones to other bones. So it's a picture of God restoring his people. And what do we take from that? One of the first things that Ezekiel sees, sinews, which means connections. Connections, bone being connected with bones. How does this connection thing happen? Let's keep going. A few centuries after Ezekiel and all that, the people return to the promised land. A few centuries after that, God sends Christ. As we've already recited gloriously this morning, he dies for our sins. He rises again on the third day. He ascends into heaven. He sends his Holy Spirit down onto his church. And that spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, starts to birth little communities of people around Jerusalem. Initially, it's fairly local. It's going to go global in time. But at this point, it's still fairly local around in Judea. There's an opponent to this new movement, someone that hates the name of Jesus, and he hates the church. He thinks they're all heretics and ought to be burned. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And he's on his way to the city of Damascus to arrest a bunch of these heretics. And on the way, his journey, shall we say, gets interrupted. He sees a blinding light shining out of heaven, and he hears a voice out of heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? Do you see? I can't resist this. Do you see what this is? It's a new Moses with a new burning bush. Moses was afraid to look at the bush. He was scared. He hid his face, it says, in Exodus 3. And he says, well, who are you? Do you have a name? And the voice in the bush says, my name is Yahweh. Now you go and rescue my people. This is that in a new covenant context, a blinding light. He's literally physically blinded. It's so intense. And he says, who are you? Do you see the parallels? This is the commissioning of, the, of a new Moses. Who are you? Same question Moses asks at the bush, and the voice out of heaven says, I am Jesus. I think this would have created some pretty quick revisions in, Saint, in Saul's, Paul's theology, don't you? The voice from the bush is really the voice that he has been opposing, the voice of Christ. He's stone blind, so his companions with him on the road, they have to take him by the hand and lead him into the rest of the way to the city of Damascus. Now, meanwhile, Jesus, the same ascended Jesus, is speaking to somebody else who's already there in the city, part of this tiny little community of worshipers of Jesus. This person's name is Ananias. The Lord speaks to Ananias, and he says, Go ahead, get up and go down to this, the house on Straight Street and you're going to meet Saul. And initially Ananias uh, protests because he says, I've heard about him. He's bad news, Lord. And the risen Jesus says to Ananias, I have a mission for him. He's going to take my name to the nations. And you are part of that beginning to happen. So he obediently, he goes along, he finds the house, he finds Paul. A very nice artist representation here of this moment. He, he's actually talking to a blind man. He lays hands on him and prays for the recovery of sight. I'm very touched by the first words he says. 
This is all in Acts chapter 9, I think around verse 17, Acts 9, 17. Puts his hands on him, asks God to restore his sight, which God promptly does. And then Ananias says these two words, Brother Saul. Do you know how pivotal that is? Then he baptizes him, and then he introduces him into the, the local church. Do you have any idea how much Ananias affected world history? If you, make, if you made a list of the top ten influential people in the history of the world, St. Paul has to be on the list. Jesus obviously is. No question. I would put Paul on that list as well. What if Ananias had said, Oh, Saul of Tarsus? Oh, oh, sorry, Lord. Uh, you must be... Oh, sorry, no way. But he obeys. And you know, Ananias, he's not one of the biblical characters a lot of people know about. Maybe for some of us this morning, this is the first time you've ever even heard of this guy. Fair enough. But he did his bit. He helped Paul to get connected. The impact of that on the church and on the world is incalculable. Now this sets us up for that verse because the same Paul you see getting prayed for there, thank you, is the one that goes on and writes the letter in your Bible called Ephesians, which we read from earlier. And in there he talks about the body being joined and held together with every supporting ligament. Let's see if my pointer will work here. There we are. You can see up near the top of the image the femur. This bone didn't get a label in this particular diagram. This is the fibula. And in between, right here, is a ligament. This is an image from a medical textbook. Do you notice something here? There's another ligament over here. Do you see the problem? That ligament's broken. And that's why it's in the medical textbook about because there's ways through, through surgery and so forth you can repair a torn ligament. But look at the one that, that is working. Maybe you've got a torn ligament you need to deal with in your life. Ask the Holy Spirit about that. There's a ligament here, and what that ligament does is it enables the femur and the fibula to be joined and to work together. I've got one of those ligaments in my right leg. Trust you're impressed. <laughs> and the only reason I can make my, make my right leg do this is because, there's lots of reasons, but one of them is that ligament is connecting the femur to the fibula in my right leg. Do you see it? It's a biology lesson Paul rolls out in teaching the Ephesians what it means to be the church. He uses this image of ligaments. He's appealing to them. Be connected. I didn't see this till yesterday. Do you know where Paul got the, the, the concept of ligaments for this, you know where he got that? Not from a medical textbook, because I don't think they had them in those days. How much he himself knew about anatomy, I don't know how much St. Paul knew about anatomy. He got this because the morning he wrote Ephesians 4, I happen to know this on very close author, authorized opinion, 
That morning, he had been reading Ezekiel in his emotions, in his devotions, I'm sorry. Maybe he's in, in his emotions as well. <clears throat> Do both, in your devotions and in your emotions. He'd been reading Ezekiel. Now, I'm fantasizing a little bit. I'm using my imagination. This idea of something in our bodies that links parts of the body with other bodies, that was not new to St. Paul. It was not new with St. Paul. Ezekiel used it centuries before. What was the, just, about, just about the first thing Ezekiel saw God restoring in this renewing of, of the people of God? It was sinews. Now, Paul uses a more contemporary term for his day, ligaments, but it's the same thing. When God restores his people, it's life comes first, but very early in the process, connection. Saul, you get yourself to Damascus, you find somebody named Ananias, and you do what he says. Ananias meets him, and he calls him Brother Saul. Earlier, he had wanted to run the other way because he was scared of him. Now he calls him Brother Saul. He baptizes him, prays for him to receive his sight, introduces him into the church. What was God doing? If you want to use Ezekiel terminology, he was putting a sinew in between Saul and the the Damascus church, mainly with Ananias. There are sinews, there are ligaments in between us here this morning. We need to get those sinews working. Sinews are our relationships. They're, our, they're the ligaments. It's our commitment to one another. I became a Christian. I'll close with a teeny little testimony. I became a Christian when I was 17. I credit myself as having three conversions. I was converted to Christ when I was 17. He was my Savior and Lord. About two years after that, I experienced the baptism in the Spirit. And it was so revolutionary and changing. I, I, can, I almost call it, I'm emphasizing to make a point, I call it a second conversion. Christ became for me not someone who was powerful 2,000 years ago. He became for me someone who was powerful right now. Gifts of the Spirit, prayer language, all the rest of it. It was like a second conversion. That was in 1969. I started talking in tongues when they were landing on the moon. 1969, I'm giving my age away here. Then I had another conversion. Two years after that, the year after that, I went to 1970. I spent a summer on YWAM, 1970. That's where Velma and I met. We are a YWAM couple. A couple years after that, I moved to Winnipeg because this is where Velma was. I couldn't find a girl in the States. I came to Canada. I joined the little group of people that over time have become this church. And I discovered the body of Christ. That was my third conversion. Up to that point, I had been a loner. And during that loner period from 1967 to 1992, I fell into immorality. I got off the rails in a number of ways that I grieve over. And I think the reason was I didn't have the proper ligaments to connect me with the church and with mature people that could help me in my walk with the Lord. If I'm speaking to anybody here this morning, get your, ask God to put those ligaments in place. Ask his Holy Spirit to do what, he, what the Spirit does in the Ezekiel 37. New life and sinews, ligaments, 
We need it. Being connected. We have next. This is your homework this week. If you've got notes, jot these down. Be connected. Be connected. Be a Ruth. If God has brought someone across your path at this point in your life that you know when I spend time talking to them, there's a real flow of life. Well, ride on that. Go with it. Do what Ruth did with Naomi. Or it may be more a case of you being a Naomi. Maybe there's someone you know you could invest in. Well, go for it. Be an Ananias. It may mean overcoming prejudices or fears in your own heart about someone, as Ananias plainly had to do with this Saul of Tarsus character, because he was scared of this guy. But he obeyed God, and as we said earlier, incalculable impact that came out of Ananias' obedience and drawing Saul into the church. Be a fibula with a femur. We could start a new game. Are you going to be the fibula? Okay, I'm the, I'm the fibula, femur. You're the fibula. We could play a kid's game with that. Find your joining. Part of that means something hugely practical. It's called pick up the phone. Take the initiative. You want to go for coffee. Send somebody a text. would love to have coffee. And there's things we can do as we go this way. We can do the one another's. Here's two out of many. There are some 80 or 90 one another's in the New Testament. Here are two of the best. Galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens. Norm, how can I pray for you this week? What's, what's going on? Maybe you're with somebody and you can tell by their body language things aren't clicking along so well. What's... Hey, what are you lugging around? You, feel, you look like you're lugging something around. What is it? Oh, that's called bearing one another's burdens. Let's do that with one another. Finally, the, the all-time favorite for me, because we all need encouragement all the time, 2 Corinthians 3.11, encourage one another. Encourage one another. Close with one little teensy-weeny testimony. Many of you know for 10 years, we ran a Bible school that was called King's Commission. And Velma and I were sort of in charge of that. And we had a system, system of mentors. So if you were a student in King's Commission, you would have a mentor, someone you would meet with once a week for an hour or to an hour and a half. And I was assigned each year. I had one, sometimes two people that I would mentor. And there was one guy that I got together with faithfully. He got together with me faithfully. And one of his vulnerable points, it was always by gender, male mentors with male students. One of his vulnerable points was that he was very easily discouraged and often depressed. Now, I could relate to that because there's a lot of that in me. Now, we went for coffee once, uh, once a week at a local coffee shop, 7 a.m., and we'd sit down at the table with our donuts and our coffee. And we'd usually start out saying, oh, how are you doing? Well, not so good. How are you doing? Well, all right. <laughs> now, that's the problem with starting, basing a conversation, or worse, basing a relationship on how are you doing. And we both noticed this. So what we did was we had a little agreement. I don't know if we stuck, stuck to it indefinitely, but it was good. We're going to scrap this social convention of how are you doing. We're going to be radical and act like we're Christians, and say, let's say it was me and Norm at the coffee table. Norm, what's God like? 
tell me something about God this morning. And then he would say the same thing back to me. He'd say, yeah, you know what? Dave, you tell me what God is like. Do you see the difference that makes? It elevates the whole conversation. It elevates the relationship. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you that your people are your plan. We see ourselves and we think, yikes, you mean I'm a part of that? He wants to make a plan using someone like me? The answer is yes. Lord, I pray for anybody here that may be a potential Ananias in these days. Would you give us faith and commitment to be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit, reaching out to people that maybe we wouldn't. Lord, I pray you would renew the ligaments in us in these days. I have not been good in this department recently, so I ask you to help me. I ask you to help all of our friends here this morning. We ask it all that we could grow up into him who is the head, Jesus Christ, and that because of it, he would receive honor and glory. Amen.